Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Happy Hour History. I'm your host, Professor Natalie Harpin, and I want it to be noted that I am on spring break, and yet your girl is still bringing you fresh content this week, okay? I didn't do a throwback episode, I made a brand new episode, so I just want to say that before we get started. Um, I was thinking about the last couple podcasts that I did, and it got me thinking about just like some themes that happen in history and how they affect especially the marginalized communities that suffer from them, and then of course how it later affects people from dominant society who didn't historically have to go through these things. And I've talked before about the analogy I like to give in my classes about a pebble being thrown into a pond. So when something is allowed to happen to one group of people, it will eventually expand out to other people who didn't think that they would be affected by that in one way or another. They don't think it's their problem, but it always becomes their problem. And so I was first of all thinking about the stigma of welfare and just how in America there is a large cultural stigma of people who need help, even though most people in some capacity have received some help. And that includes politicians, that includes major businesses. I just talked about um, Silicon Valley Bank before, so... Um, And those of you who are familiar with the recession that we had in 2008 know that there were huge government bailouts like but nobody really calls out those companies for getting welfare from the government to keep the banks afloat or to keep their their auto companies afloat. But somehow when it's somebody who needs money for food to feed their kids, all of a sudden now it's a handout and it's too much and there should be all these stipulations and rules about it. And the stigma of welfare has caused many, many people to be affected. So namely, I was thinking about how there were people who were believed to be on welfare, who were non-English speakers, and how they were forcibly sterilized. So this is I'm thinking about the Spanish-speaking population in L.A. in the 60s and 1970s who were forcibly sterilized because there was the stigma and like the projection that these women were poor because they didn't speak English, when that's not necessarily true, or that they were on welfare, and that wasn't necessarily true. But it's the idea of and the image that the country, the media for the country has created about who is on welfare, who is not a citizen. And obviously a lot of that falls image-wise, on black and brown women. Black women being sort of blamed for the cultural stigmas of welfare and brown women being blamed for the cultural stigmas of of being non-citizens or trying to have what are called floater babies. So having children within the United States, or maybe call it anchor babies, right? So that they and their children can stay because now the children are American citizens and need raising, right? Um, They need someone to take care of them. So even though, again, both those populations are not the majority who utilize welfare benefits or come over to have anchor babies and or are illegally entering the country, but they are used as the imagery of that. And it's interesting when you look at news reports from the 60s and 70s when they were forcibly sterilizing these women, that a lot of that is blamed on the cultural stigma of these women being non-English speakers, and so 
also not being from communities that largely assimilated to American culture, which I talked about on the podcast about the Indian Removal Act and also the um, the Homestead Act. But those newsreels from major news corporations like today, I think, I'm not sure if it was ABC or NBC, but they had news reports or they had, you know, the anchors talking to people and saying, oh, this baby isn't a citizen and the mother's on welfare. And they created this whole hoopla around these non-citizens being poor or these non-English speaking women being poor. And then they created legislation to justify sterilizing them. And that's why I say all the time that the negative imagery and the caricaturing of people isn't just a joke or isn't something that should be taken lightly or isn't just people who can't find the punchline or are being too sensitive. I hate when people say stuff like that. It directly impacts legislation. It directly impacts the laws that are created to limit these people based on these cultural markers, racial markers, language markers, etc. So something else I thought about with regard to the stigma of welfare was a Supreme Court case, which was King versus Smith. And that was in 1968. And it was a Supreme Court case, basically, that says that the federal government can't well, there it places limits on how the federal government can determine how they implement a federal program. So what happened was there was this woman named Sylvester, Mrs. Sylvester Smith. So I'm not sure what her first name was, but she had four children, and neither of none of those children's fathers were around. So the first three father had died. And the fourth child's father was not in the picture. So she qualified for federal aid. She was having um, an affair with another man and he would visit on the weekend. But the idea was that at the time that if there was any male present, that a woman would no longer qualify for federal assistance or, you know, for welfare. And in this Supreme Court case, they ruled that this man was not responsible for these children. And even when he did like, financially responsible, right? Um, He's not any of these children's father. And just because he had a presence there doesn't mean that this woman shouldn't qualify for federal aid. So that affected later people in 1968 and onward that they can't say because there's a man around that a woman does not qualify for welfare. So that was in 1968. Um, It's also very, very important because of the stigma of welfare recipients, right? Being that, you know, if there's anybody around who can help, I guess, who's a male, then, you know, you can't receive this aid. And there was a time before that where they used to be able to go into your home to see if you had any male suitors, any boyfriends, like as far as like adult women, right? Um, And they could snatch your welfare benefits away from you because of that. Some I've heard cases where they saw if you had a nice toaster, they could say, well, how do you pay for this toaster? Right. Well, who gave you the toaster? Well, if they can give you a toaster, why can't they help you pay for your uh, food for your children? And they would use that to justify taking these people's welfare benefits away from them. Um, Another thing I was thinking about is something I reported on a few podcasts ago about Iowa and some of the things that have been happening in that state. So there's a Senate bill 1105, and I think it's House File 3, where they've been talking about different types of um, new implementations they want to put on those receiving welfare because they believe that there's widespread fraud in the the, um, public assistance programs or basically welfare, right? And they're targeting the SNAP program in particular. So 
this will have an effect on senior citizens who are receiving welfare benefits to help help supplement their income and also people who are on Medicaid or who are um, disabled citizens or other abled citizens and including those who have um, low who are low income. So it also it seems that they want to add in I mentioned before how they're saying that able-bodied adult Medicaid recipients would have to work 20 hours a week to receive health care benefits, 20 hours a week to receive health care benefits. And that is a part-time job. So I'm not exactly sure how that would relate because I'm not sure if Iowa State is different from other states. I know that like health care is no longer like you have to have health care. A lot of employers have to offer uh, some type of health care package, especially if they have over a certain amount of employees, I believe, or the size of the company. So maybe they're trying to get people off of Medicaid that way because 20 hours a week is, you know, basically like a whole part-time job. So they also want to say, I've talked before about how they don't want people within the state to be able to buy white bread, white rice, certain types of beans. You'd have to have like, you could only buy whole wheat bread. You could only buy whole wheat pasta. And I thought that was interesting too, and obviously very restrictive because there have been studies that have said that eating whole wheat all the time because of the seeds and granules in it can harm your digestive tract and harm your, your stomach lining. Um, but that's not what this is about. But they also want to bar them from being able to buy certain types of fresh meat. They have to buy canned meat. I talked about that before. But it seems like now they also want to stop people on the SNAP program from being able to buy candy and soda. So again, the stigma of you know people taking advantage of the system by purchasing a soda or by purchasing some candy. Um, I think is completely ridiculous, especially because a lot of these people on these programs have children. And even if they don't have children, this is America. If they want to have a soda or have some candy, I don't see what the big deal is. People aren't spending their whole um, debit card amount on, I'm not going to like specifically list any type of candy because we don't do free promo over here, but they're not buying a bunch of candy and soda with their monthly stipends. And the same proposed, the same, um, proposed bill, right, because it hasn't completely gone through, it says that it would limit the it would limit the match the federal asset test guidelines, um, which would mean that families could have a maximum of between twenty seven well, two thousand seven hundred fifty and four thousand two hundred fifty dollars in assets, depending on the disability status. So again, like I said, that is saying that if you have certain things in your home that these items are too nice for you. It's valued at this price, so you don't really need any public assistance, which isn't going to include, and I'm sure it doesn't include, people who had those assets before they needed public assistance. So it also applies to savings, so like your financial savings that you have in the bank, and property like cars or land. So if you have too high of a valuation of assets, you are no longer going to be eligible for benefits. So (laughs) I just thought that was really, really interesting um, that they're taking those types of things into consideration. Again, it it has happened historically to other groups of people who are not racially represented as the majority in Iowa. But like I said, if you allow it for one group of people, it will eventually expand to others. And the interesting thing is that apparently it's being reported that 
SNAP use within the state of Iowa is at a 14-year low. So there are more people who are relying on food banks, but they're not necessarily on federal welfare programs. So, of course, the state is saying that they need to save money by catching people who are involved in fraud, even though, statistically speaking, there is not that fraud that they are claimed to be worried about. This just seems to be another power move to try to limit what people can and can't do if they're seen as, you know, the right type of um, residents of the state. And it's really, really sad like I mentioned, you know, that already already I mentioned about the rice and the pasta and the types of bread and the types of um, meat that are going to be forbidden from people to get on these benefits. But, you know, I'm also thinking about people who, like I mentioned, are supplementing their income who are older, who can't work. And again, they can have their assets taken into consideration. Well, what are they supposed to do? Sell off their things? not have cars, especially if they live in rural parts of the state, which many people do. So they live in these rural parts and they can have their car used against them to say, oh, well, you know, you have this car. I guess if you really needed the money, you could sell it. It's just, it's sick. It's upsetting. But like I said, it's part of the culture of stigmatizing people on these programs and being very persnickety and hyper aware of the things that they have and don't have and what they are or aren't doing. It's also infringing, I believe, on their personal liberties. Because again, if you can't have soda, you can't have white rice, you can't spend your money on... And again, I'm not buying into this idea that an overwhelming majority amount of the... Excuse me, an overwhelming majority of the people are purchasing stuff that they don't really need, that their families don't need, or that isn't in their best interest. There are always going to be people who do stuff like that and who take advantage, but they are not a majority of these people. And so with that being said, it's egregious that for the small population of people who are taking advantage of this, that it affects everybody who is who is receiving these benefits and again how you have individual people who are stigmatized for being on public assistance or welfare handouts whatever you want to call it but that these major corporations these banks don't receive any of that pushback they're not called un-american or lazy or just well that's bad business that's capitalism like that's just how it goes like that's not the rhetoric that they're met with they're met with support largely and of course there are people who are going to be pissed off about it right because it's you know it's like well you know if you did bad business like why should the american government have to spend billions of dollars to bail you out and then transfer the cost of that onto the taxpayers right but the overwhelming rhetoric is not one of shame and shaming these people or these corporations for their practices but there is a culture of shaming people who are believed to be um, those same recipients, but on a more personal level. And since these things don't seem to have already been in place for um, at least for a very long time within the state of Iowa, it makes me wonder how they're going to determine what the valuation of these items is. Like for cars, I guess they could go by like a blue book, right? Like they could look up what the value of the car is. But when we're talking about other assets in the home, Like, once again, are we talking about televisions? Are we talking about um, computers? Are we talking about cable? 
services? Like, how deep are they going to look at these things? I mean, it just, it leaves up so much wiggle room and gray area to be exploited. And historically speaking, those areas are always exploited because the people who are in charge of these programs and the state governments don't really want to give anybody a meaningful package to help supplement their income. They're they're trying to find ways to take those things away. And even by saying 20 hours a week, right, for able-bodied, quote unquote, like what constitutes an able-bodied person if they're on Medicaid? That's my question. Because most of the time, people who are on Medicaid have some type of limited ability. So how do you determine who's able-bodied if they're receiving those benefits? Is it a matter of how long they've been on the benefits? Is it a matter of if they can be rehabilitated through physical therapy, etc.? Or is this something that, again, they're going to have to create an office of and give jobs to each other's kids for like these wealthy people putting their family members and cronies in positions of authority to determine who is able-bodied or not, or at least what jobs they can or can't do with their limited abilities. So it makes me think about all that stuff because again, I'm a historian. So I know that that gray area is always exploited and that oftentimes when things appear to be either white or black, it's done so it's reported in a way to make it seem like it's white or black like it's very simple and you know it's meant to be very direct but that there are always loopholes that are exploited within that because of how these these uh, codes laws acts um federal benefit programs how they're written the language in which they're written is very important and that's why even when I was talking about the difference between race, ethnicity, and nationality, right? Like I, I titled it words mean things because words do mean things. The loopholes and the words, like the words that are used in these legal documents has very real impact on the people who are affected directly and indirectly by the legislation. Because you have to imagine, even for people who are older or maybe have limited accessibility, that can affect um, if their families can give them any assistance at all, or even if their families can give them gifts, right? Just thinking about it, like if you wanted to gift your parent or grandparent a television, or if you wanted to gift them a nice appliance to use in the home, like who's to stop someone if this goes through in Iowa? And of course, if it goes through in Iowa, it with the way with how law works in this country, it'll go through in other states as well. And they'll use Iowa as a precedent. Who's to say that somebody doesn't go into your parent or grandparents house and say, Oh, that's a really nice um, stand mixer. You know, that's valued at $400. And you're like, well, it was a gift from my child or my grandparent or, or excuse me, my child or my grandchild. It was a gift from a friend. It was a gift from another like a colleague or close friend of mine who is not on these benefits, who's to say that they won't have lose their benefits because someone values that item and says, well, if, if they can afford to give you a $300 mixer, why can't they buy your groceries for the month? So we'll see how this goes through. Like I said, if it does go through, it will affect many other states of people because precedent is a really big part of American law. And like I've been telling you all in class, especially if you're my student, we need more lawyers. Like, I don't know if you really want to get in the field of teaching. I'm not going to go on a session about that. Um, Education has largely become a business and it's very difficult for people who love the field of education to be inspired about going to work and dealing with students um, these days because of a lot of the restrictions that have been placed on us and a lot of the expectations 
and lack of compensation that we suffer from and deal with. But again, I'm not going to talk about that today, but we need more people to get into law and to challenge these types of legislations to And even if you're not interested in law to read up about things that are correlated or that have happened in history so that we can stop these things from happening again. So I'm going to leave off on this episode because I am on spring break, but I hope you all have a great week and I will see you on the next episode of Happy Hour History. Thanks everybody. Bye.